One of the most common questions I get as a pastor, maybe, maybe the number one question I get asked, has to do with the future, the end times. I get asked all the time, like, Pastor, when will Jesus return? How many of you would like to know when Jesus is going to return? See, I, I, I thought so. I'm kind of curious, too. When is the end of the world going to take place? What about all this stuff we read about in Scripture, all these biblical prophecies? What about 666 and the mark of the beast? And what about all these things? We're going to talk about these things this morning. We've been going through the book of Mark. And if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn it on or pull it out. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 today. And I love going through this, this, uh, this book of Mark. It's the shortest of the four biographies, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts telling the same story from different perspectives about Jesus. And we're here for one purpose and one purpose alone, which is Jesus. We're not about anything but Jesus. And I get so frustrated when I, when I hear about young people today aren't, aren't following Jesus because they've been tripped up by all sorts of religious stuff. I want to say we're just about Jesus. So I don't know a better place to go than to read Jesus' words in order to get to know somebody. A lot of your Bibles have the words that we're going to look at today in red, which means they were, they were quoted by Jesus. Now, just fair warning, Jesus didn't speak English when he was here. I'm sure he knows how to speak English, but he didn't speak English, so we're, we're reading translations from the original Greek into English. But we're going to be talking today about the future. Now, you, you may recall people have been talking about the future, and they've been making predictions for a very long time about when is Jesus going to return? When is the end of the world going to take place? You may recall about a decade ago, many were saying that the end of the world would coincide with the Mayan calendar on December 21st, 2020. 12, thinking that 12, 21, 12 was going to be the day. Wikipedia, I found out, was packed with predictions of the end of the world, beginning with the Jewish Essene sect in 66 AD. Yeah, back then, they were predicting the end of the world. Some thought it would end on January 1st, 1000. I know some of you are older, but none of you are around January 1st, 1000. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted the end in 1941 in the middle of four dates given by Herbert W. Armstrong. Then there was Jim Jones in 1967. A guy named Charles Manson made some predictions in 1969. The Jehovah's Witnesses again in 1975. I guess if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. Pat Robertson said, Pat Robertson said 1982 was going to be the day. Edgar C. Wisenot in 1988, he wrote this book. I actually remember reading this book. It's just a little booklet. It's called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. Just out of curiosity, any of you remember this book? I'm the only one. Wow. Oh, okay. And of course, that guy was wrong. Louis Farrakhan in 1991, Harold Camping in 1994, and in 1995. Nostradamus predicted it in 1999. That was going to be the end of the world. Many of you remember Y2K. Oh, the end of the world, or at least the end of our computers, end of electricity, everything's going to blow up by Y2K. 
The only thing that blew up were some really beautiful fireworks all around the world. And then, of course, Jerry Falwell, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, even John, Jonathan Edwards thought it was going to be 1-1-2000. And unfortunately, the predictions continue to this day. People trying to, to make prophecies and predictions about when the world is going to end. When is Jesus going to return? When is this or that going to happen? And when people ask me, I always say two simple things. One, we're one day closer than yesterday. I'm pretty sure about that one. And the other thing, and the reason that Jesus talked about it, the reason that prophets spoke of the end of the world, just one very simple thing, to get ready. To get ready. Again, we're one day closer. And I wonder, are you ready? Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you are real, that you are alive. Jesus, I thank you for your promises and every promise that you make is yes and amen. You always fulfill your promises. And when we look today at your word, I pray that we'd be gripped. Our hearts would be shaken. Our minds would be awakened. Our hands would be open to experience all that you desire for us. In Jesus' name. Today and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at John, uh, John, at Mark chapter 13, a passage known as the Olivet Discourse. I've always been confused about what Olivet means. I've heard of Olivet schools and church, Olivet church names, and it's just really a reference to Mount of Olives. This is a discourse. This is a series of teachings that Jesus did on the Mount of Olives, and we're going to start it today. We're going to finish it next Sunday, and then we're going to take a break from the book of Mark for a little while and hit some other things, other parts of the Bible. But this passage, known as the Olivet Discourse, is also found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It's also found in Luke 21. Parallel passages, this teaching is so important. It's often been called the little apocalypse because of its apocalyptic nature. The word apocalyptic literally means uncovering. Some of you are familiar with apocalyptic literature. It's very challenging to understand. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? The book of Revelation is probably the, the quintessential passage of apocalyptic literature. And people have making, been making interpretations and predictions to understand what does this strange language mean? You know, one of the challenges about apocalyptic literature, besides its pronunciation, are these questions raised. Specifically, does it speak of something in a present day or a future? Is it speaking of something in the past? What is the timetable behind it? See, biblical prophecy often has more than one meaning in view, and it's critical for us to understand that. So often people read a text and they make assumptions and declarations about a specific place, a specific time, and they say, this is what it means. But sometimes there are multiple meanings. If we were to drive out west on the Ohio Turnpike, and I know some of you have done this, if you stay on I-80, eventually you're going to see what looks to be a large mountain. Maybe a hundred miles in the distance, you see a mountain. And I, I got this illustration from Pastor John Soper of Mission 119. I think it's a brilliant description. He says, it's like, it's like seeing a mountain. You go, oh, so in a hundred miles, we're going to reach this mountain 
we will arrive at our destination. But what looks like one mountain may actually be a whole series of mountain ranges. That mountain might be 100 miles away, but there also might be another peak that's 110 miles away or 150 miles away or you know, maybe several hundred miles beyond that. This is what prophecy is like. We think, okay, this is the point, this is the destination, but there could be multiple things in view. If you've ever read Zechariah or some of the other prophets when they speak of Jesus, they'll make predictions, they'll make prophetic notions about the coming of the Messiah, but sometimes what they're talking about actually occurred hundreds of years earlier or later. People are waiting, the Jewish people are waiting for the Messiah. Side note, he came about 2,000 years ago, but he's coming again. And part of the confusion is because a lot of the prophecies made about Jesus spoke not of his second coming, but his first coming. When the prophets speak of the coming Messiah, there may be more than one thing in place, more than one date in place, which, again, it makes it kind of confusing. It makes it a little frustrating. But I think what we're going to see this week and next week, Jesus says some really important things, some of which have already come true, and some may yet be in the future. The context of Matthew chapter 13 is Jesus' rising popularity with the crowds, and of course, the rising hatred among the religious leaders that were jealous, that didn't want him to have all the attention. He was stealing their thunder. And so all this, this energy is being put toward Jesus. The crowds are excited. And in chapter 4, Jesus talked about hearing. In chapter 13, he's going to talk about seeing, about watching. So, family, I want you to watch. I want you to, to look at the text. We're going to look at this together. Pastor Keith spoke last week about suffering, and, and persecution is, has been a, a powerful force for God's kingdom to develop. It's the strangest thing. In our nation especially, we do everything we can to avoid suffering. But suffering often has a purpose. It certainly had a purpose in the early church. Persecution has, a, has been a way of life for so many followers of Jesus, but Jesus ultimately has the, the last word. And I know this because I've read to the end of the book. All right, let's dive in. Matthew or Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Have you ever been impressed with a building? I'm easily impressed by buildings. I'd love to, to go see skyscrapers. My favorite big city is Chicago. I think we've actually got some decent structures here in Toledo as well. But these massive structures, or maybe you've been in a cathedral and just admired the artistry, the, the work that took place. None of us can even fathom what the temple was like. The temple was incredible, one of the wonders of the Roman world. It covered one-sixth of the city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed the original temple of Solomon, and then the book of Ezra describes a smaller replacement. Now, centuries later in our text, Herod Antipas was still completing the edifice started by his father, Herod the Great. So imagine this temple twice the size of the Acropolis in Athens. Actually covered 35 acres. Perhaps most impressive were the stones that are mentioned here. Some were 30, 
uh, 45 feet long. Imagine a stone, 45 feet long, 11 feet high and 12 feet thick. Just incredible. That's like one stone. It's part of this 35-acre campus. If you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see the remains at the Temple Mount. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus. The disciples are just admiring the temple. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. That's a jolting statement. Jesus, what are you talking about? Every, I, I mean, it, it took years to, to build this. What do you mean it's going to be destroyed? Will there be an earthquake, a tornado? How do you even know these things, Jesus? As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? We want to know. Like so many today, they wanted to know about the end times. Jesus had given them a beautiful, poignant statement that must have blown their minds. Was he giving them Real estate advice, don't, don't buy those buildings, guys. It's, it's going to be destroyed. They won't last. They wanted to know when. Give us a date, Jesus. Maybe we'll go on vacation that week and avoid all the destruction. And they wanted a sign, too. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Jesus is saying, watch out for imposters. They're coming. False prophets are coming. There'll be all sorts of people claiming to be the Messiah. Has this ever happened in history? Absolutely. It's happened time and time again. False messiahs have formed cults and led many astray. And Jesus is warning them of what is ahead, though he gives no dates. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. The wars and rumors of wars are not the end. There's still more to come. He tells them, watch out for calamities of human origin, wars, and rumors of wars. Have we ever experienced wars in our world? Tragically, there have been wars virtually every moment on the planet somewhere. For the most part, U.S. Americans are unfamiliar with war, at least on our soil. We've been very blessed, but people around the world are very, very familiar with war. It's hard to imagine what it would be like to, well, specifically to live in Israel right now in the midst of all the conflict and chaos. Jesus says wars must happen. Why, Jesus? Why, why do we have to have wars? I think it's very simply because Jesus knows the human heart. That we're just not satisfied with what we have. We always want more. We want more power. We want more land. We want more stuff. And power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and I don't think I have to explain this to any of you. But he says, do not be alarmed. Keep calm. Keep calm. That's what I've wanted to tell people, especially the last year or two. Like, just keep calm. Keep, it's okay. Don't freak out. God's on the throne. Jesus says, watch out for calamities of human origin. And then he says, this nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom there'll be earthquakes in various places and famines these are the beginning of birth pains just the beginning those of you that have given birth you probably remember when the birth pains started 
And you thought, oh no, this is it. And you discovered maybe 30 hours later, <laughs> that was just the beginning. A little Brexton Hicks contractions going on or something. That was just the beginning. There's so much more ahead. Jesus is saying, first, there are human calamities, but then there's going to be natural disasters. And of course, we've seen those and we continue to see those in our world today. But he's saying that's just the beginning. This is actually the place to, to start right here. This is the place to understand our text for today. Because Jesus is saying, watch out for these things. He doesn't say these are the signs. He says they're just the beginning. And then Jesus moves on to the next sign. You want to know what the sign is going to be? He says to his disciples, you're asking for a sign. Here's your sign. You must be on your guard you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. The book of Acts, family, is filled with stories about this. These things happened. These happened to the, th to the very people that Jesus was speaking of. In fact, it, it's pretty much a, a, a certainty, according to both history and tradition, that all of Jesus' followers became martyrs, except for John, who was boiled in hot oil. I think I'd rather be a martyr than be boiled in hot oil. See, Jesus is warning his followers about what is ahead, and he's saying there's some, some gruesome stuff ahead. The temple, it's going to be destroyed. There will be wars and famines. There's going to be all sorts of crazy things that lie ahead. And it amazes me sometimes when people read the, the paper and they, they hear the news today, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is, what was happening? It's not new. This stuff's been going on for 2,000 years. It just feels new because, well, because it's current, because it's recent. And because we're exposed 24-7, 365 to news and information that we used to be able to bury our head in the sand about. Believe it or not, there once was a day where you didn't have a device in your pocket that could give you instant news about anything anywhere on the planet. Some of you remember those days. Some of you remember where you just got your news from a TV. Some of you are old enough to remember before TV where you got news from a radio. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember before radio, but there were newspapers. News traveled a lot slower back then. But now we're, we're just saturated with fear. Well, Jesus' followers most certainly must have asked, why? Why persecution? Why, Lord? It prompted the spread of the gospel to other places. See, Jesus knew that if they stayed in Jerusalem, they would get all comfortable and cozy. They'd have their little Bible studies. They'd, they'd huddle together. But the rest of the world would be completely oblivious to what was happening. The rest of the world would never know the good news of Jesus Christ. The rest of the world would never have the opportunity to be followers of Christ to surrender their lives, to receive the gift of salvation that Jesus offered through his blood and body on the cross. To experience the new life like Jesus' life after he was resurrected from the dead. To have a hope and a purpose and a future. 
So what happened is, in the midst of all this calamity, and again, Acts describes this so beautifully, the church, the capital C church, it was scattered all over the world because it was too dangerous for them to all remain in Jerusalem because they were handed over to local councils. They were flogged in the synagogues. So they began to move out and spread out into other lands, other countries, other nations. And as a result, the gospel, the good news, was spread and shared. Today's Great Commission Sunday. And honestly, it kind of amazes me that 2,000 years later, there are still people in our world that have never heard the good news of Jesus. That even with technology and with the, the internet, with radio and TV, there are still estimated maybe billions of people that have never even heard the name Jesus. And this is why, as part of our Alliance family, we get the chance to participate in helping everyone hear the good news. They can reject it. They can say, no, that's their prerogative. But at least they need a chance, don't you think? At least they need an invitation, an opportunity to experience what we've experienced, the great joy of knowing Christ, the, the great peace of having a hope and a future, the promise of salvation, and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus said, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. The parallel in the book of Matthew says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One of the driving passions of our church and our denomination's founder, A.B. Simpson, was to see the Great Commission completed so that Jesus can return. Albert Benjamin Simpson took this passage at face value. Is this a statement of what will occur or a condition for Jesus' return? A New York Journal reporter approached Dr. Simpson with the question, do you know when the Lord is coming? Yes, he replied, and I will tell you if you promise to print just what I say, references and all. The reporter's poised notebook gave the ready promise. Then put this down. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto the nations, and then the end shall come. Matthew 24, 14. He asked, have you written the reference? Yes, what more? Simpson said, nothing more. The reporter lowered his pencil and said, do you mean to say that you believe that when the gospel is preached to all nations, Jesus will return? Just that, Simpson said. I think I begin to see daylight, answered the reporter. I see the motivation and the motive power in this movement. Then, said the alliance leader, you see more than some who have their doctors of divinity. See, Jesus said the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And I have to be honest, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario. Which comes first? Can we actually make the end come sooner by preaching the gospel? It seems like Jesus is stating what will occur rather than a precondition for his return, but I may be wrong. Regardless, we are all called to make disciples, to love others well, to always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, to share good news. The gospel must be preached to all nations, and we have the opportunity, the privilege, the family to participate in that. I urge you, family, Pray 
for our international workers all over the world. Give generously to the Great Commission Fund. It funds all of our work in dozens and dozens of nations all over the world. Next week in General Council, we're going to be commissioning some new international workers, including Jessica Bryant, who was here last Sunday, talking about her plans to go to Japan. And I know some of you are not able to travel to other parts of the world. Okay, most of us can't travel to any parts of the world at this moment. But our Alliance family is in places where you and I will never be able to go. You can literally reach the world for Jesus Christ without a passport by simply giving to the Great Commission Fund, by praying and partnering with our international workers. This is one of the things that I love about our Alliance family. Missionary is our middle name. But missions isn't just something we do over there. Missions is something we can do right here. There are international students that live in your neighborhoods. There are people from all over the world here in Toledo. And I love Water for Ishmael, one of our home missions partners, that's dedicating themselves to serving international students, refugees, immigrants, many of whom have no access to the good news of Jesus Christ in the nations where they live. But here in the United States, they can be befriended. They can hear the good news. No matter how we do it, no matter how we participate, we all need to be engaged in the, good, the Great Commission, this idea of making disciples of all nations. And Jesus is saying, this has to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be a brilliant and beautiful thing when every person gets a chance to hear the good news of Jesus. So Jesus continues and he says, whenever you are arrested, there's no if in there. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I would imagine the disciples found this to be incredibly encouraging and also a little frightening as well. Whenever you're arrested, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will come. Today, we desperately need the Holy Spirit, family. I need the Holy Spirit each time I stand before you, and I pray and pray and pray that he speaks through me. I don't really care if you, if you know my name, if you, if you know anything about me. I'm not here for my sake. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. I'm here by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I pray that you hear his words each week and not mine. My wisdom is not worth much, believe me. But tragically, and yet for a purpose, the persecution would go beyond the government. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Jesus is warning them of the cross they must pick up daily to follow him. The enemy will divide families. 2,000 years of history have borne this out. It's heartbreaking to hear of people rejected by their families when they begin to follow Jesus, but it should come as no surprise. Following Jesus is dangerous, but it's worth it. It is dangerous, family. If you follow Jesus because you think he's going to make your life happy, 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 stay away. Someone said the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. No, the most dangerous place to be is in the center of God's will. But let me tell you, the most exciting place is there. 
Of course, the greatest thing is in the center of God's will is God himself. And I'd, be with, I'd rather be with God in the most dangerous place than anywhere else without him. And Jesus says again and again and again, it will be worth it. It will be worth it in the end. Would you trade 80 years of suffering for eternity of joy? It's just those 80 years feel so long sometimes. He says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's a troubling and yet comforting statement. I've never met anyone who wants to be hated, but entering the kingdom of heaven will be worth it, no matter the price we pay in this life. All believers will someday be vindicated. Jesus never breaks a promise. All right, so what, preacher? What are we supposed to do with all this? We just want to know when it's going to happen, and you haven't told us. I know some of you, by the way, you've been told, oh, this passage is about the second coming of Christ. Others believe it's about the end of the world. Where does this fit into the millennial reign? Was all this fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed the temple? I actually believe the latter, but I could be wrong. It could be speaking again of multiple things, of multiple places in time. Again, biblical prophecy can be challenging to understand, but we do know that Jesus will return someday. We're told repeatedly to be ready and to get others ready, which is what the Great Commission is about, what the Great Commission Fund is about, what we are about is getting others ready. For centuries, our brothers and sisters in the faith have faced tremendous suffering and even martyrdom, and that may be our fate someday too. I know some people are so zealous for power. But the reality is God's going to accomplish whatever God's going to accomplish. It doesn't mean there's not a place for us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in what's going on, that we shouldn't vote, we shouldn't be advocates of certain things. But realize there may be suffering involved for all followers of Jesus. And they will all be rewarded for eternity for whatever sacrifice they make. In our text today, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. He says, stand firm, and those that do will be saved. If we seek God's glory instead of our own, his kingdom will come, his will will be done. I've always been amazed that the very persecution that we seek to avoid is the thing that caused the gospel to spread. What Jesus said here came to pass as recorded in the book of Acts in Philippians 1. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We need to be ready. We need to get ready for the return of Christ. We need to get ready for the possibility of suffering. Tom Wright notes, those Christians who don't face persecution often face the opposite the opposite temptation to stagnate, to become cynical, to suppose that nothing much is happening, that the kingdom of God is just a pious dream. Family, the kingdom of God is alive and well. We need to get others ready. They need to know. Everyone deserves a chance to hear and to know Jesus. He never breaks a promise. He not only made predictions about the destruction of the most beautiful building in the world, he promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said that in verse 11, that the Holy Spirit would come and give them words to speak when they were arrested and on trial. 
And today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the birthday of the church. Not First Alliance Church, the church, capital C Church. Today, churches all over the world are celebrating Pentecost Sunday, the events in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came on the scene. 